Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. You certainly can't go back in time and change maybe what has happened to you, but that's sort of the benefits of, of an existential approach uh, to mental health, especially for veterans, is it's not about what's happened in the past. It's about how we can make choices now um, by first identifying where we want to be in the future uh, as a means of, of navigating wellness um, and whatever that looks like for each individual. When a civilian enters any branch of the military, they go through a period of basic military training that's designed to change the way they think and act to turn them into a soldier, sailor, marine, airman, or coast guardsman. This is seen as an important time in the individual's life, critical for the proper transition from being someone not in the military to part of one of the greatest fighting forces on the planet. After a period of time in the military, however, there's little done in any branch of the service to help that service member transition their mindset to life as a veteran. As we often say here in the Change Your POV podcast network, after one leaves the military, they're never going to be a civilian again. And they're no longer a service member. They're this entirely different third thing, a veteran, with all the experiences, knowledge, strengths, and challenges that go along with that word. One of the most overlooked aspects of transition is a service member's mental health and wellness. If the veteran has their heart, mind, body, and spirit in the right place, and has a support network of family and friends to rely upon, then they're most likely going to have a successful transition. Those things are not in place. Things can get challenging. I'm your host, Dwayne France, and I'm going to take you through a veteran mental health boot camp to give you some advanced training for your brain. These episodes will cover the many different aspects of veteran mental health that I, as both a combat veteran and a clinical mental health counselor, see, experience, and support veterans with daily. I'm going to be joined by both veterans and mental health professionals talking about what you need to know about the stigma against seeking support, the different areas we need to understand, and provide some resources for when you think you might need them. Get up in the morning and out of the rack, because this is some information that could very well save your life. Welcome to Veteran Mental Health Boot Camp.
Hey folks, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, my name's Dwayne France and I'm your host. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to not only to listen to this particular show, but stick with us as we're going through this series of, uh, of, of veteran mental health, which goes beyond just PTSD and TBI. So uh, if, uh, if you're keeping score, we're halfway through. You're on the seventh interview so far. Uh, we've covered uh, internal stigma, external stigma against help seeking. Uh, we have talked about PTSD and TBI because those are actually aspects of veteran mental health, but, but really there's, uh, there's more than that. Uh, and then we've talked about substance abuse and emotion regulation. Um, and, and so now we're getting into sort of those aspects of veteran mental health that as I described in the first episode that you can go back and listen to episode 25 uh, that really aren't diagnosable conditions necessarily. So uh, the second half are, are really mental health concerns that, that, that veterans deal with that, that maybe aren't diagnosable but are still major aspects to it. So again, uh, appreciate you listening, again, not just to this show but, but to the series overall. So I'd like to uh, introduce to today's guest um, uh, Dr. Aaron Smith. And uh, Dr. Smith and I uh, have, have had a couple of conversations um, about some really great stuff, and and I think we're going to have to rein it in because uh, both he and I are are, are pretty uh, pretty geeked up on on this kind of topic. But uh, Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, Dwayne, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. And you're absolutely right. This is an exciting topic, and so uh, it's you you may have to do the reining. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that that both of us are probably going to have to make sure that uh, curb our enthusiasm, I guess. In in so before we get into that, before uh, we get into the, the purpose and meaning uh, and the uh, the existential aspect of it, how about you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, your military service, and uh, then sort of what you did after you got out? Yeah, yeah. So uh, initially, I joined the United States Marine Corps back in 2005, uh, right out of high school. Uh, I was not sure whether or not college was something that I wanted. Um, so I ended up with Delta Company 4th Reconnaissance Battalion as an infantry Marine. Uh, as an 0311. So I was with Delta from 2005 through 2013. Um, in 2008, we had a short deployment to the island of Curacao with the Royal Dutch Marines, uh, which was essentially a training mission to help train Royal Dutch Marines on how to conduct reconnaissance operations. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my military service in a, in a nutshell, if you will. So you were in for, for how long? Uh, eight years. Okay, so you, so you had eight years uh, but then you got out, and you weren't a mental yeah. health professional uh, when you were in the Marine Corps. Um, That's how right. did you get into uh, working as a, a mental health professional? Yeah, great question. Um, so when I joined my unit in 2007, uh, they were essentially in a position where they had been overdeployed, and so they had been deployed so many times since 2001 that there was this decision made that any further deployments would have to be rigorously vetted. And so that's why we ended up on our deployment to South America. Um, as a result of being in a, in a unit, especially one like a reconnaissance unit, I, I realized early on how important it was to learn about uh, how to work with survivors of trauma, um, how, how to talk about issues like suicide, uh, which was something that affected our unit in a very real way um, across the entirety of those eight years. And I realized that I had very few of those types of skills. Um, so even as an NCO, I mean, going through a lot of the, the trainings that they require you to go through on, say, counseling Marines, it's typically in counseling in terms of the pro-cons, right, as opposed to uh, 
maybe counseling your junior Marines, especially uh, about the things that they do to take care of themselves, um, which I found to actually be one of the more important pieces of leadership, of small unit leadership in the Marines, but one that we didn't talk about very often. Um, so for me, that was definitely where my interest in psychology came into play. Um, I'd come across, and this is maybe a little bit preemptive for what we're going to be talking about here in a bit, but I'd come across man's search for meaning when I was in the school of infantry. Um, we had actually had a Marine who had attempted suicide. It was pretty gruesome. Um, so finding that book, uh, during that time in my life ended up being a really powerful sort of formative experience for me in terms of how to make sense of what was going on. Um, and, and helping other people make sense of what was going on as well. And so sure enough, yeah, when I got out of the Marines, I decided to pursue a degree in, in psychology. Um, from psychology, I fell in love with the applied aspects of working with veterans in a therapy role or a more therapeutic role as opposed to a role as a researcher. Um, so then from there, uh, I went ahead and applied to the University of New Mexico's counselor ed program, uh, worked through my master's and became licensed in working with veterans in a mental health capacity. Um, my interest continued to grow though, as I came across a number of questions that weren't being answered, um, and weren't even being posed in the research on how to work with, with veterans and how to help facilitate greater veteran mental wellness. So you, one thing that you and I had talked to in our, our initial conversation actually was about how little... Um, you find conversations about meaning and purpose as a core aspect or core element of, of what wellness looks like, especially for veterans. And so I decided to pursue the PhD to kind of learn how to approach those questions from a more structured sort of scientific approach than what I had the skills to do at the time. Does that make sense? No, it does. Absolutely. And, uh, and as I'm, I'm, Listening to you, my uh, one of my fellow co-hosts, Bennett Tanton, who is uh, also a uh, former Marine, served some time in the Army, but he said he was a Marine that wore wore uh, Army clothes. But uh, there you but, go. But uh, you, you you kind of broke the mold and sort of uh, going against the the stereotype of of the uneducated Marine, so to speak. Um, so yeah. I mean, and and obviously, you know, that's uh, stereotypes that everybody plays into and things like that, but. But a lot of the things that you're talking about uh, and even um, finding, like you said, uh, man's search for meaning at the beginning, you're right. There is a lack of conversation, which is why we're trying to do this series. Not necessarily a lack of conversation with the veterans themselves, but there's a lack of a conversation in in our professional community um, about veteran mental health um, with uh, when it comes to existentialism. So. Yeah. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about what existential psychology is, maybe as, uh, you know, from the from the broad spectrum? Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. So um, I don't want to go too far back. I mean, I could go all the way back to the existential philosophies that help to inform how we use existential psychology in a mental health capacity. But essentially, I mean, for thousands of years, we've been thinking about what makes life meaningful or maybe not so meaningful, depending on your perspective. Um, more specifically, the type of existential psychology that I've, I'm working with or using in my research and in my clinical work with veterans uh, is an existential psychology called logotherapy, uh, which was developed by Viktor Frankl, uh, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, definitely one of the, the fathers of existential thought. Um, and he's also a survivor of a concentration camp. And so um, when you talk about a, a field or a sect of psychology that is concerned about issues around death and dying and how death and dying can 
can actually help help you orient uh, your actions and choices and attitudes now in terms of in as much as they're able to teach you how to live your life. Um, you can imagine that a survivor of the Holocaust would be uh, particularly one as insightful as Viktor Frankl might be a huge asset um, in trying to understand how a realization that, that time is finite uh, can actually help you live a, a, a more well existence, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. And I like how you touched on sort of uh, the very beginning, the philosophical underpinnings. This is something that, that obviously isn't widely known, is that uh, the, the father of, of American psychology, so to speak, William James, was a philosopher by trading. Um, and so philosophy uh, informed, like you said, uh, just a lot of psychology from the very beginning. Uh, and, uh, and maybe a sense of frustration is as we've gotten farther away from the philosophical understandings of, of mental health um, and more to the manualized um, sort of, uh, you know, step-by-step uh, -step approaches uh, yeah. that we get farther away from our roots. Uh, so I, I like Love how it. you brought that, but then, um, and you talk about man's search for meaning. And, and I'll tell you, for, for those of you Veterans, um, if you haven't read this book, it's not a very uh, long book, um, and uh, unless you're you're geeked up about mental health like uh, like Aaron and I are, you really only need to read the first half of the book. Yeah. Um, but the the book, it, you need to go out check it out. You need to listen to it. You need to read it. Um, Aaron, when I first read that book, it was probably it was after my um, first tour in Iraq and in my second tour in Afghanistan. I think when I finally read it. Yeah. So I was reading it from a combat veteran perspective, and I was surprised how many parallels there were, how many things I recognized in what he was saying about the concentration camps uh, that I recognized in, in myself or, or those uh, combat veterans that I've served. Is that something that you've heard from veterans? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um, so in particular, when we talk about serving in the military, um, one thing that I think is misconstrued by those who haven't served in the military is this idea that, uh, you know, why don't you just quit if you don't like it? Or why don't you just quit if your job is triggering for you or causing stressors uh, that impact your life in a very real way? And we know that that's obviously not the case in the military. You can't just quit that job. Um, and there's a deeper sense of why you wouldn't. Not only is it is there the administrative aspect of it, but you, you tend to have this deep sort of connection with other people in your unit. Uh, that, that make that not a choice, right? And so most definitely when you talk about being stuck, uh, say, in a situation um, in the military, it, it is sort of similar in many ways to being a prisoner, but you're also very much a prisoner of your past experiences. And so uh, you certainly can't go back in time and change um, maybe what has happened to you, but that's sort of the benefits of, of an existential approach uh, to mental health, especially for veterans, is it's not about what's happened in the past. It's about how we can make choices now um, by first identifying where we want to be in the future uh, as a means of, of navigating wellness um, and whatever that looks like for each individual. Yeah, and, and I think that is critical, looking at that. And, and you talked earlier about um, you know looking at death and dying. Um, but one thing that I always thought that uh, Frankel did well was, was by looking at death and dying we were able to also look at life and living yeah, um, and, and having even in the, the most dire of circumstances where he was um, still found life worth living, even in, you know, horrible conditions. 
Yeah. So can you maybe uh, talk a little bit about uh, sort of Frankel's idea, um, his, his maybe the concepts, uh, some of the stuff that he talked about in Man's Search for Meaning that you see a parallel with veterans? Yeah, most definitely. That's a great question. Um, so first off, he has these three sort of core tenets of logotherapy. Um, they are freedom of will, will to freedom, and meaning in life. And so essentially, meaning in life is the idea that that meaning and purpose can be found under essentially all conditions. Um, regardless of what it is that might be going on, you can either discover meaning or you can create it. And as a mental health professional, you would not tell a client that most most likely, right? Because it's easier said than done, especially when a trauma has been very recent. Uh, but it is important to recognize that first fact. Um, the second would be um, freedom of will, which is the idea that you have some control over your actions or thoughts um, in as much as they may help to adjust the course that you're on, either towards wellness or away from it. Um, so what do we got? We have meaning in life, freedom of will, and will to meaning. So will to meaning is this idea that the basic human motivation is the search for meaning. And so Freud liked to talk about how sex or pleasure uh, were the basic human motivation. Uh, a little bit later, one of his students, Adler, talked about how power uh, was something that motivates every human being. And then Franco came across, um, actually as a student of sort of Adler and a little, little bit of Freud, and said, no, I disagree with both of you. I think it's meaning. And so you might find meaning in power or you might find meaning in pleasure. Um, so those things can be true, but there's more nuance there, right? So when you talk about a veteran, somebody who has been in the military for any any amount of time, really, um, you get pretty used to being told where to be, when to be there, who needs to be there. Um, being told exactly what it is your meaning and purpose is at any given day or moment throughout your day, right? Uh, but when you get out of the military, a big part of that transition is you, you no longer have that. Um, you no longer have somebody telling you where to be, when to be there, etc. And so on a deeper level, you also don't necessarily have somebody telling you what your meaning and purpose is going to be for that day or for that mission, um, whatever that might be before that operation. So I think maybe sort of in a general sense, that's how I, I typically introduce this idea uh, when working with veterans, either in a clinical capacity or in a research one. So, and I really like how you identified that, uh, that will to meaning sometimes that uh, when we were in the military, that that meaning was provided for us. Yeah. Uh, but I also recognize that we established our own meaning, uh, for things. For example, I was, uh, I was deployed to Bosnia in the mid nineties and for whatever reason we were there, um, I, you know, sort of uh, made my own meaning to say that, you know, now these kids can, can play, you know, and, and, and yeah, I, I love the, it. you know, my meaning is that, uh, I, I'm there to keep that, um, you know, that stuff from happening. And I've heard guys say the same thing about Iraq and Afghanistan, whatever the, the, the big, you know, global national goals were that they had the meaning was, uh, to be able to let this market go, or even was, uh, they, they made the meaning for themselves when something was, was not able to be understood by them. They created a sort of meaning. Yeah. And a lot of it was surrounded by their friends, you know, brothers and sisters in arms. And, and if nothing else, I need to continue because being a part of this gives me meaning. Uh, and so, yeah. although that, yes, we're told, you know, you know, do get up at, at the crack of dawn because I told you to, um, there's a bit of transformational aspect that you get up at the crack of dawn sort of because you want to. And so we can develop meaning. And, and this goes yeah. into, you know, uh, Frankel's other, you know, uh, meaning, 
or happiness must ensue from something and it can't be pursued. Um, that, uh, that we develop that in ourselves in the military, but sometimes again, in my experience, veterans forget how to find meaning in something that's meaningless outside (laughs) the military. Yeah. Yeah. No question. No question at all. Um, and I I just want to say, I really love that, that, idea of, of looking at the nuances of meaning development uh, throughout your time in the military. So, I mean, I'm thinking of situations where uh, even down the line, providing meaning to situations that may not have had meaning for you in that moment. So looking back on uh, field operations that, that ended up being, uh, you know, in that moment, a really uh, crappy field operation, right, where you're stuck out in the in the rain and the muck uh, for a week or two at a time or a month, whatever. Uh, but looking back on it, those are the ones that I maybe look back on most fondly which is kind of strange retroactive Uh, meaning yeah 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 that's exactly right uh but you're right it also does force you to kind of either discover or create a meaning um in those situations where you're not given opportunities to have control over your schedule for that day um so yeah most definitely i i love that approach that makes a lot of sense to me Dwayne. so and now um in and you say that um, you know there is a lack of a conversation about it, sort of in a mental health sense or in a therapeutic sense. Yeah. But veterans talk about it all the time. You know, they talk about it on task and purpose, and they talk about it yeah. on social media, right? You know, this whole idea of, you know, um, you know, where am I? You know, who am I? What do I do with my life? These are these are questions of existence, um, you know, yeah. and not questions of, of sort of, you know, it's definitely not PTSD or anything like that. No. Uh, and so how do you help veterans understand that this is a totally different aspect of veteran mental health than just PTSD or TBI? Yeah. So are we thinking more of the existential stuff or the yeah. post-traumatic growth? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and definitely – getting into uh, post-traumatic growth in a bit, but, but yeah. I guess from a therapeutic sense, you know, it's, it's not, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're not sitting here, you know, staring at the sky or, or looking at our belly button, but we're really trying <laughs> to, to understand, um, you know, make meaning of our current existence and then our past existence. How do you help veterans work with that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it happens organically. And so one of the things that I teach counseling students who want to use an existential approach, and one thing that I was taught early on was that for you to be an effective advocate or fellow sufferer on that road, however you want to look at your your role uh, in that therapeutic alliance, um, you have to kind of know how to be directive, but also non-directive. It's kind of how to walk that line. Because at the same time, or on the one hand, you know, you might – hear a veteran talking about something uh, that makes them happy and you see their kind of their face light up or their nonverbals change. And that might be a cue to you that they're talking about something that seems meaningful or, or was meaningful or whatever. Um, but on the other hand, if you kind of key into that too much, you might be pushing something that you feel might be meaningful for that person when it might not actually be. And so it actually starts with Socratic dialogue. Um, so Socrates came up with this this approach to mental health, um, he called it myutic dialogue, which is Greek for midwife. Uh, so literally what his idea was, was that you already have the knowledge to heal. And in this case, knowledge we're referring to is existential knowledge, what, what will or could make your life feel or be more meaningful. Um, but what Socrates talked about was asking questions that are intentional um, – they're strategically designed questions to help you think for yourself – 
about what things in your life might be meaningful or how past experiences might become meaningful um, in as much as they help to guide you towards some greater purpose. And so uh, one thing I like to do is ask them a question, um, and this definitely takes quite a bit of, of rapport I built uh, with the individual that you're using this technique with, but asking them to talk about their life legacy. So how do you want to be remembered in this world when you're no longer around? The things you want to be most excited about, the things you you maybe wouldn't be so excited about being remembered for, uh, and then figuring out then, once you have an idea of the type of legacy that you want to leave this world, um, how each individual situational meaning between now and whatever, whenever that endpoint is, um, how that endpoint helps to to inform or guide those situational meanings or decisions. Does that make sense? No, it does, uh, and it and it's sort of uh, how I kind of um, help veterans. And I said, I, I want to help you realize what you already know. Yeah. Right. I, I want to, you know, and, and, and we may not know it. The veteran may not know it or whoever I'm working with may not be aware that this one thing is the thing that, that, that brings them, you know, joy or brings them meaning or anything like that. And so, yeah. and, and that's really, it is, is helping them and, and, you know, reflecting and things like that. Another thing you said, though, was that, that we have the tools. This is one thing that I, I really would like uh, for those uh, uh, mental health providers who are listening to this, um, is that we all know existential psychology. You know, is, or, or, you know I would say a, a good portion of mental health professionals working for a period of time talk a lot about this. Of course, uh, Viktor Frankl and uh, Irvin Yalom and Rollo May in that in a, a you know very humanistic sort of um, uh, psychology, but they don't know that they have these skills, and they don't realize that the veteran has these challenges, and therefore help them apply those skills to those challenges. What I mean is, if if most practitioners believe that just PTSD and TBI are the end all be all when it comes to veteran mental health, then they're not going to address yeah. these existential concerns. You're right. Well, it would even help for them to understand that those are aspects of, of post-traumatic stress. And, and certainly TBI can affect um, how you find meaning or purpose in life or what becomes meaningful for you in the aftermath of a traumatic uh, brain injury. Um, but even looking at how trauma uh, affects meaning and meaning as an indicator of post-traumatic stress that one one that we don't oftentimes talk about right we talk about other other indicators of post-traumatic stress like intrusive recollections um autonomic nervous system hyperactivity right things that are are certainly important aspects of post-traumatic stress but they don't necessarily hit on those deeper things like like you mentioned things like meaning and purpose and how those things are affected by trauma and, and I think that uh, without that, uh, without really an understanding of, of how that aspect of, um, um, of just psychology or of, of mental health and wellness can impact PTSD, uh, then I think a lot of uh, veterans, in my experience, uh, miss out on post-traumatic growth. And you'd mentioned that a little bit before. Um, and, uh, and, and I'd like for you to talk a little bit about post-traumatic growth. Um, I understand, uh, you know, what it is and, and its possibility, um, but uh, but I'd like you to break it down to the audience a little bit. Yeah, yeah. What well, great segue into post traumatic growth, actually. And so, if we were to consider uh, from an existential trauma, from an existential perspective, then we might suggest that trauma 
has an effect, um, a negative effect on the presence of meaning and purpose in your life. And by that, I mean that as trauma increases, the degree to which you understand or, or experience the presence of meaning is likely to decrease. I say likely because when you're working with people, you know, certainly there's going to be a lot of variance, um, which is one thing I love about mental health. Um, but we also understand that when you when trauma affects negatively the presence of meaning, so when trauma disrupts how you make sense of the world and where you fit in it and how it feels meaningful, um, we know that it also activates that will to meaning that we talked about. So one of those three core tenets of logotherapy. Um, and so the will to meaning is exactly that. It begins this, this renewed search for meaning. And so there actually have been a couple of studies um, kind of this is important to know as we talk about post-traumatic growth here in a moment um, that were done actually in the 70s. So it's actually been a little while since uh, there have been a lot of real structured approaches uh, to understanding meaning in, in respects to trauma. But essentially, that is exactly what they found, that there is a negative relationship between the presence of meaning and the search for meaning. And so really that's um, – sort of a fancy way of just suggesting that when trauma disrupts what makes life feel meaningful, it activates our will to meaning, which is the the process that begins reconstructing a sense of meaning in this world in the aftermath of trauma. And so that's, that's what uh, we refer to as post-traumatic growth. So post-traumatic growth being the flip side of the post-traumatic stress coin, uh, they are certainly distinct things. You know, oftentimes when we talk about mental health, we're actually not talking talking about mental health. We're talking about the presence of negative symptoms, um, symptoms of suffering in particular. However, with post-traumatic growth, we're not just talking about not having the symptoms of, of say, a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress. We're saying that, that, that you have additional symptoms that are actually positive that would not have occurred had that trauma not occurred. And in this case, we're talking about things in your life that may actually be greater than they were before the traumatic incident. Uh, which again should be codified. I mean, you're you're never fortunate to experience a trauma by any means, um, and there's not a trauma in this world that, that that you know I think anyone would say that they were lucky to have or experience. Uh, but there can be outcomes of trauma that can then become positive, as yeah. well as predictors in and of themselves of wellness. Sorry. No, no, and that's that's exactly you know, and like you were just going to say, and it is. It, about predictors and predictors of, of how to, you know, uh, come out the other side. Um, you know, uh, I think one thing you said is post-traumatic growth being the, the other side of the coin for post-traumatic stress or, or post-traumatic decline. But, but a, a veteran does not have to have experienced or, or be diagnosed with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder to, uh, to achieve post-traumatic growth. Um, it, it's not a, a one for one. You don't have to have the decline. You don't have to be down in the valley, for example, yeah. um, to be to be to gain strength. Um, you know, from an event. Um, there's a, a, a post that I wrote, and I'll I'll link to it in the um, in the show notes about um, getting through the other side of the valley of death. You know, we we you know whatever the metaphorical and sometimes and especially for me, the uh, very literal uh, valley of death. Um, that, that coming out the other side, we have a choice, uh, if we're aware of that choice, to either engage in those dysfunctional behaviors that will um, cause us to continue to decline, or to consciously engage in those behaviors that will result in a greater understanding of mortality, greater appreciation of, of life and living, like we were talking about before. 
Yeah, no question. Um, I, I love that that perspective, uh, particularly in as much as, as we had talked about this idea of the life legacy helping to guide those exact kinds of decisions. And so when I talk about existentialism in the, in the sort of capacity of mental health, uh, that's exactly what I, what I try and conceptualize is this idea that you have some choices to be made that every moment, uh, Frankl talks about this in his book, every moment we're being asked by life, what is the meaning of this moment going to be as opposed to us asking life, what is the meaning of my life in this moment? Uh, and those are exactly how we answer those types of questions. Um, at least in the type of, of existential work that I practice is by putting those first within the context of where we'd like to be. Yes, and in that, uh, the choice, that deliberate choice is also something that, that I understand uh, from Frankel is, is very, uh, very critical. Uh, the, the statement, the famous statement, of course, um, we, we think of this when we think of cognitive behavioral therapy. I've heard this statement used in, in many different ways, but uh, uh, he said, between stimulus and response, there is a space and in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and freedom. And in that statement, you know, everybody says, okay, if I can just separate the trigger from my reaction, if I can get more time between that for when the, the, the loud noise happens or, or the smell comes, if I can get a space of time between that, then I can have more control over my re my physical reactions and my thoughts or things like that um and so that is a very that's very much cognitive behavioral therapy right there is interrupting and and, and being able to take back and question yeah but a lot of people don't realize that that's really an existential concept um a, a really a concept based on our own reflection of our existence yeah that's absolutely right um and i in many ways i think the cognitive behavioral approaches are closely aligned, if not entirely enmeshed in, in existentialism. And so one interesting piece to the post-traumatic growth research is that it typically happens purely from a cognitive realm. So we talk about the, the transformational model of post-traumatic growth, which is the most common one that we use in the mental health field. Um, we're talking about a, a, a model of understanding growth in the aftermath of trauma that looks first at, at schema change. Um, and so what I'm hoping bringing existentialism does to this conversation is it infuses the idea that it's not maybe not so much important as to the fact that you're thinking about your life in the aftermath of trauma that helps create or develop post-traumatic growth, but that you're thinking about existential issues specifically, and those end up being your predictors of whether or not you experience growth in the aftermath of something horrible. Yeah, I, I think that's really great. And using that to really inform the understanding, uh, that's critical. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious if, if maybe in your research, if you have seen maybe a difference between how veterans approach existentialism versus those who may never have served. Have you seen a difference? You know, I have not done a comparative study, so I wouldn't be able to speak to that, but I also haven't come across any comparative studies in the literature, so it doesn't mean that they don't exist. Um, I've, I've gone through quite a bit of the literature, uh, but certainly by no means all of it, um, but it also might speak to an area of advocacy for us, right? That might be a perfect opportunity to, to engage in a, a, a causal comparative study. Um, in fact, I might even add that um, – to my research agenda because I have access to an undergrad population. I love it. Maybe you and I can do that together. 
Uh, we we might. We need to get get done with this conversation first, and then we. Well, the reason why I asked was uh, was a couple years ago. I had attended a talk with uh, with Irvin Yalam, um, who, as you well know, and and uh, and as our our readers, I talk about both Yalam and Frankel uh, a couple of times uh, on this yeah. podcast. Um, that, uh, that 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 Irvin Yalam had said that one of the things that he found most intriguing in his what now 60, 70 years of, of practicing, <laughs> um, uh, practicing psychologist is that uh, most clients don't talk about death um, very easily. You know, they don't talk about um, the end of life. There's a fear of the end of life. There is a a, a lack of willingness to go there, say in the therapeutic sense. And, uh, and, and after I, I heard him say that, and I have immense amounts of respect for Dr. Yalama, would never say that he's wrong, and, and I'm certain <laughs> that he's, uh, he's in that. But in my experience, veterans talk about death all the time, mm-hmm. right? That, 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 that it really is that we're in, and I have this, this concept that as, as veterans are closer to, uh, you know, they've experienced definitely the military being an inherently dangerous um, occupation, um, separate from any trauma that might happen. But even as you said, when you were in, uh, in, in boot camp or in school there, and, and even going through uh, your, your eight years that you had, you know, Marines take their own lives. And we know that, that, you know, active duty suicides and veteran suicides are critical. And so death is very much a part of a veteran's experience in the military, theoretically, and in many times, literally. Yo, most definitely. I mean, I, I remember very, very clearly having to dig fighting holes, and we called them our graves. Um, so we, when we're walking around on Firewatch and looking at all of these Marines sleeping in their graves and thinking about the fact that we, we call them graves, right? Um, you certainly cannot uh, escape the military without deriving some degree of comfort with death and dying. Um, it, it, it would seem to be. Right, and and that in in my experience again, I, I think that is a difference in existentialism um, with with service members versus those that haven't served. Um, is that we're a little bit more aware of our own mortality. We're we're you know um, conscious of you know I've heard veterans that talk about how you know they thought they were invincible until you know maybe they got injured they saw a veteran you know another uh, brother or sister get hurt or, or god forbid they saw him get killed and, yeah and so then it became it it stopped becoming theoretical and it became literal and it become actual and i've heard veterans talking about you know angels of death and and not seeing angels of death but just this really heavy um you know contemplation of death what what is the meaning of death why did i yeah. live and they didn't live i mean there's mm. these are all heavy existential questions um that can be challenging maybe to wrestle with on your own oh most definitely i think that certainly contributes uh to why it can be really helpful to talk to a counselor i think that uh the military may not do a great job all the time of uh making sure that you're aware of of how beneficial it can be to talk to a counselor but especially if you have the right counselor um you you get in touch exactly with those kinds of issues um yeah no, no question. It, and, and you're right. I mean, we we didn't do, and and I guess I assume unless things have changed in the time that you and I've been out, that that maybe not still don't do. Um, but it's uh, is is uh, another um, colleague of mine, uh, Tony uh, Tony Williams, had said on his show a while back 
was that um, the military wants us to be very cognitive. They want us to be very rational and, and, you know, kind of reduce the emotion, take the emotion out of it, you know, um, and, and sort of squeeze yeah. everything up into our head. Uh, I recall I had a, um, one of my gunners uh, in Afghanistan. Um, he had made a uh, particularly challenging long-distance shot. Um, you know, the, uh, the enemy was uh, acting in such a way that, that warranted it. And, uh, and, I, and I was talking to him later. And I said, you know, guy, that was a, that was a good shot. And, you know, what, uh, just talking to him about it. And I said, how did you do that? He's like, oh, you know, Sergeant was just like Call of Duty, right? You know, and I just raised my weapon and I lobbed it, you know, and, and, and I had to say, whoa, 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 that was real life, right? Let's, let's not, yeah. let's not think that, yes, there was this time that, yeah, it was all cool, but then, but then pull back and say, no, no, that was, that was something that was actually a real thing that you did Yeah. that, you, that you're going to have to come to terms with sooner rather than later. Um, yeah. And and I think that there's a lot of that, the, the dehumanization of of um, of the enemy and, and things mm-hmm. like that, um, that that go into a lot of those kind of things, too. And, and I think, like you said, that the military doesn't do a very good job at doing that while they're in. And I don't know that they can. You know, it's one, it's yeah. hard to change the machine when you're in the machine. <laughs> right. um, but but then. There's not a lot of resources to be able to help a veteran come to terms with that once they're out. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, I, you know, I was thinking as you as you were talking of another situation that I came across as a counselor where I, where I had a client that was dealing with survivor guilt. Um, he, he had lost a friend as a result of a VBID or a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device, uh, and one of the things that that actually he had come up with all on his own. Again, I mean, that's that's in accordance with best practice when you're using these kinds of things in, in a mental health uh, capacity. But he had talked about how um, one thing that had drastically changed the direction of his um, symptom development, if you will, maybe that's a good way of putting it, uh, where, where he started seeing drastic changes in maybe the, his level of depression, uh, even things like sleep disturbances, was this idea that if, if his comrade couldn't couldn't live a life uh that maybe his comrade wanted to live that it would be in in many ways dis- disrespectful of that person to continue on the path that this client was headed down uh, which was not a path that was that was in accordance with where that client wanted to be in that ultimate life purpose that that life legacy that we talked about earlier um so again i mean yeah absolutely had he had opportunities to come across an awareness like that earlier on in his symptom trajectory i think that would have been a really helpful thing uh, but it had been a couple of years, and a lot of things can happen in that amount of time. Uh, yeah, most so, definitely. So I, I hear, you, and, and so you're 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 veteran. I mean, and, and it really could be it been you know any of the clients. I think I've heard that same kind of thing before that that they were in sort of a very you know unregulated emotional place. Um, you know that yeah. there was a lot of guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. But then the, the your client came to the realization that if I continue on this downward spiral then that's going to be disrespectful to the memory of my fallen brother. Yeah, exactly. And that would be never anything I would tell him, right? Right, right, no, right. But, but but the fact that he came up with that on his own, yeah. But there was also another piece that, that as in, in, in as I was hearing you say that, a veteran could also say to themselves, because my buddy didn't get to live a life mm-hmm. of happiness and joy, I also don't get to live a life of happiness and joy. And so can yeah. explain their downward spiral. And so I think that's a good yeah. example of where these, 
where that's a divergence of I'm going to decide to grow versus I'm going to decide to continue to decline because it's how I explain it to myself. Mm-hmm. And you know what? That's that's an area of the research that we're not real clear on when we talk about post-traumatic growth. So post-traumatic growth is still relatively new. I mean, it started coming about around the, the 90s, mid-90s, uh, 95, 96. And so we don't know a lot about the development of post-traumatic growth or what specifically is contributing. I mean, we know that certain certain things help facilitate greater post-traumatic growth, like intentional rumination as opposed to avoidant rumination or intentional coping, where you're you're trying to actively engage the experience and thinking of ways of it, assimilating it or accommodating it into your, your life narrative. Um, or, you know, there's the opposite, which is the avoidant, which is style, which is certainly consistent with everyone post-trauma early on, which is the idea that I don't want to think about those ideas or think about what happened. Uh, and so it slows or stunts that progression into making sense of it in a way that, that looks like post-traumatic growth. Um, but that's exactly something we don't know a lot about something that I'm excited to continue to explore, um, especially with veterans who have survived trauma. And I think that's a, that's an important thing to consider is, uh, you know, where do we go from here? I mean, there is much in, in psychology that we don't know. Um, of course, there's much in, in, in the world that we don't know. Yeah. Um, but, but this, again, is the, the reason why we're trying to uh, provide this um, this this series to help veterans, help those that support veterans, and help other mental health professionals understand that there is more to veteran mental health again than just PTSD and TBI. And you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, survivor's guilt. Um, survivor's guilt is is totally separate from post traumatic stress disorder. There's no yeah. no guilt aspect, no shame aspect. That lies much more in the realm of what we're talking about here: purpose, meaning, and existential psychology uh as well as uh next uh, the sh- tomorrow's show is actually going to be about moral injury uh separate from and there's a whole level of me- meaning making and and how do i explain things to myself with moral injury so a lot of these sort of converge but they're also very yeah. separate yeah most most definitely um i mean I, i've definitely talked to a number of mental health professionals that uh, when they want to talk to me, it's about things like post-traumatic stress. Um, TBI is certainly one that, that we hit on on occasion. But I, I've never had a mental health professional, aside from you, uh, approach me and want to talk about post-traumatic growth. And so I, I mean, it's another reason why I pr- really appreciate that you're doing these kinds of podcasts and that you're, you're, you're talking about things like moral injury. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to hear that podcast as well when that one comes out. I, I'm a big fan of yours, Dwayne. Well, I appreciate that. And, and, and really, again, um, you know, a fan of yours because it, just when I was trying to, to research for guests who would come on to talk about this specifically, there aren't that many of our colleagues that are talking about this aspect of, um, of veteran mental health and how it impacts veterans specifically. Um, the, the challenges, you know, and, and again, the veterans are talking about it. Um, I've got a good colleague, uh, a good friend of mine. Another former Marine who broke the mold, he was a platoon leader in Fallujah, and he went on to get his, uh, his law degree, um, and so wow. uh, he's, a, he's a good friend of mine here in uh, Colorado Springs, and, uh, and, and Joe talked about that, I need to find something to replace the mission that I had in, you know, when I was in the military, I, I needed to find something that replaced that sense of a greater, and that's... That is all about purpose and meaning. That has nothing yeah. to do with post-traumatic stress. Um, you're, and you said that um, 
that not a lot of, of providers, mental health professionals are talking about this. Uh, but I've been talking about this, obviously, over the last couple of weeks as we've been developing this, um, this series. I would say that, yeah, probably about 10 or 15%, maybe 20% of the clients have some form that I talk, that I work with, have some form of post-traumatic stress, maybe a, a smaller percentage uh, PTSD. But yeah. there has not been a client that I've worked with, military service member or spouse, that hasn't had some struggles around purpose and meaning. It yeah. is it is it is almost universal when I talk to veterans um, with uh, as a mental health counselor. Oh well, well put, well put. And I you know I think when we think about things like addictions and how that is. Uh, most definitely linked in in most, if not every case, some type of trauma or or com- you know complex um, ordering of trauma called compound trauma. Um, we can also see that similar link with meaning and purpose, and and like you said, just about everything that might make somebody want to talk to a counselor. Um, or maybe it's the opposite, where somebody comes in to talk about, uh, say, trauma. Um, or an addiction, or homelessness, or whatever, and they end up talking about meaning and purpose, and and that end up ending up being a pretty core aspect of of what effective treatment looks like for that client. Um, yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right, and there's it, it's these uh, you know we talk about uh, peeling back of layers, and and I have two teenagers, so when I talk about that, they talk about Shrek and onions and stuff like <laughs> yeah. that. But it really is like that, like a layer cake, right? The donkey says, but. But it is layers, and there's layers underneath. Um, there's things um, that are foundational, mm-hmm. uh, and and even um, and going back to Doctor Yalam, um, he said that uh, I and and I think uh, in his book Gift of Therapy, uh, he says that uh, existentialism is not a separate branch of psychology. It should inform all aspects of psychology uh, because it is so universal. Yeah, I love it. Uh, yeah, I love it. I, I'm not sure why there has been sort of a hesitancy to, to talk more about existential things, but I, I think I think you probably hit the what's what's the saying? You hit the nail on the head uh, when you talked about how there's there's oftentimes that hesitancy to bring in aspects of death and dying, uh, maybe especially with with sessions where that doesn't sort of organically emerge in the session. But at the same time, they are absolutely core indicators, or they can be core indicators of what wellness looks like for people, um, especially when it helps to guide each and every decision that we're making right now, which we know are, are going to be predictive uh, in most cases of how we end up. Yeah, this is, uh, this is great, Aaron. I think that you and I could go on for hours and hours. Um, but uh, I, I'd like to be able to give you an opportunity if a uh, – if a, a listener here wanted to learn a bit, little bit more about um, sort of uh, existentialism, especially when it comes to veteran mental health. What yeah. uh, what kind of stuff would you recommend? Maybe that they check out. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think right now I would stick with sort of the primary sources. Um, so things like reading uh, Victor Frankl's *Man's Search for Meaning*. If you're a mental health professional, *The Doctor and the Soul*, as well as another great uh, text of Frankl's, you had you'd mentioned a couple other really really core um, sources. Again, for typically for more for mental health professionals, being things like uh, Irvin Yalom's *The Gift of Therapy* was fantastic. There's a great book by Yalom called *Staring at the Sun* that can be helpful for for clients, and I've given that out as a reading before. Uh, with clients, and it's it's essentially a, a novel that he writes um, about death anxiety, 
about what it looks like to talk about death and about things in your life that can uh, kind of bring those things up to the surface. So that's that was staring at the sun. That's a great resource. Um, well, and we'll uh, you know I'll definitely make sure that there's a link to that stuff in the show notes. I I, I believe, okay. as a matter of fact, it, it might have been staring at the sun that the Dr. Yalam was re- referencing um, in his talk uh, that I had attended. Uh, but uh, but but Dr. Yalam is very readable. It's he's very approachable mm-hmm. as far as being able to read and and so I, I may throw some more of his. Um, uh, some of his books uh, in there as well, um, and and again, just the the idea of as you did, um, you were seeking answers uh, as you went through your experience and training, uh, yeah. and you found man's search for meaning, and and it kind of drove some of that. Yeah, most definitely, and I would say one last resource is uh, a counselor. I mean, a counselor could be a really helpful. Uh, I know that's sort of a general resource, but I, I thought I would throw that in there as well. Um, sometimes it helps hearing it from other veterans, my, myself, you. Um, that counseling can be a really helpful thing. So don't don't uh, let past experiences help to inform p- the potential utility of, of seeing a mental health professional, if that's helpful. No, I, and I like that. And don't let someone else's past experience yeah. definitely drive what you know, because a lot of people say. You know, and this is, a, and I, I've said it before, and I'll continue to say, and it's not like Freud on the couch. You know, I, I yeah, I have a goatee, I have glasses, but I'm not going to sit there. We're not going to talk about your mother unless yeah. your mother's the problem. Then we could talk about her all day. But there but, you it's, go. but it's not Freudian psychotherapy where we need to sit here and and delve into every aspect of a former trauma. Um, yeah. That uh, you know that that when you're in a place of less well function. Um, you go to a professional to help you to get to better function. So if your mm-hmm. car isn't working, you go to a mechanic. If your lungs aren't working, you go to a doctor. And so yeah. if we find ourselves sort of in a less than than well place, um, or, or even a pretty good place, but maybe we're hitting a plateau. Uh, yes, of course, uh, go see your, your friendly neighborhood mental health counselor. Love it. So, uh, so how can uh, some of the listeners maybe um, learn a little bit more about you? Do you have um, yeah. uh, maybe social media, your own website? Yeah, so um, I just got hired as an assistant professor at Western Washington University. So I do have a professional site uh, that I can provide you that link to. And I can also provide my contact information if there are veterans who have interest in maybe even being a participant in some of our studies. Then most definitely um, everything we do is 100% anonymous. Uh, and de-identified, so there wouldn't be any way for anyone to know who, who provided our responses. But we can find uh, more information about studies that I'm working on, um, or maybe you're somebody who wants to help out with a study uh, as a research assistant or whatever, um, or you just want to talk about existentialism. I'd love to do that. So I will provide you that contact information. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'll make sure to get all that in the show notes. Well, Aaron, I, uh, I really appreciate the time that you've taken today. And I think that you've uh, definitely given our audience a, a different way of looking at uh, veteran mental health uh, and, and honestly, veteran mental wellness. Well, I sure appreciate you having me on, Dwayne. Like I said, I'm a fan. Well, that's good. You, you, my wife, and my mom. So maybe that's. <laughs> uh, I know that the, there's there's some more out there, and, and really, uh, you know, as you said, this is. I think it's a necessary conversation. For, so thanks for joining us. Yeah. Oh, hey, no problem at all. Hard work. Hard work. Hard work. 
So I appreciate you listening to that episode with Dr. Aaron Smith talking about purpose and meaning in veteran mental health. You can find the show notes on this show and many of the things we talk about at either changerpov.com or veteranmentalhealth.com looking for episode HST032. This is the eighth episode of Veteran Mental Health Boot Camp, a series brought to you by the Change Your POV Podcast Network and the Headspace and Timing Podcast. If you're a veteran or service member, the family member of one, or support veterans in any way, then this series is designed to help you understand more about veteran mental health. If you're just now getting into the series, go back and check out episode HST025, where we introduce the concept of looking beyond PTSD and TBI in regards to veteran mental health. Make sure you subscribe to the Change Your POV podcast network on your podcast player of choice and sign up for updates at changeyourpov.com and veteranmentalhealth.com. We would love to hear your feedback regarding this series and all of the shows in the Change Your POV podcast network. You can do so by visiting our Facebook group, leaving a comment, or review on iTunes. Remember, veteran mental health and wellness is the basis of a successful post-military life and one that all who answered our nation's call to serve deserves. Remember, brothers and sisters, you're not alone, ever. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.